Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels, and on episodes like today, we sit down with our favorite creators working in the medium. Today we are joined by author of The Hunger and the Dust and Poison Ivy, G. Willow Wilson. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so if you can hear any background noise, listener, we are filming this from New York Comic Con. We are very excited to be sitting down, but if you hear any that background, just pretend you're here with us. You're here on the convention floor. You're here, Mario's making eye contact. <laughs> it's, it's an exciting time. So, before we jumped on this, we were talking a little bit about The Hunger and the Dusk, and you said that this was your lockdown book. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about where The Hunger and the Dusk came from? Sure. So, like a lot of creators, uh, during lockdown, I had several projects that were put on hold, and uh, I also had to switch from sort of writing full-time to being a surprise homeschooler to my two kids, uh, who are no longer going to class in person. And as a result, I started thinking about stories I would do if there was absolutely no pressure on me. Um, because there was none. You know, everything was up in the air. We didn't even know if there was going to be a comics industry at the end of all of this. And at the really darkest depths of, of lockdown in Seattle, we were both hiding indoors from the pandemic and also hiding indoors from a horrific wildfire season. So the outside air was literally unbreathable. Um, and, you know, the KN95 masks that we bought to protect ourselves from the virus, we were now also using to protect ourselves from the air, which had become poisonous. Um, and it changed. I mean, like at that point, I was like, wow, this really does feel like the end of the world. Really, like you couldn't see outside. We were, it was like being trapped and kind of cooked alive. <laughs> and I began having this intrusive thought because I, I entered this sort of YOLO space where I was like, nothing really matters. We might as well tell the stories we really want to tell. And I started having this intrusive thought about a hot orc saga. <laughs> that took place in a world that was collapsing in a kind of similar way. So the background of The Hunger and the Dusk is we're in a shrinking landscape. We're in a world that does not have a name, uh, and less and less of it is habitable every single year. And a lot of the peoples who once lived in this place have been vanishing, going extinct, leaving and not returning. Uh, and the only peoples that are still left, the orcs and human beings, have been fighting for this last little remaining piece of this world where you can still live, that will still support life. Um, and, you know, if that sounds a little bit like uh, the world that we live in, that's on purpose. <laughs> um, and I was like, nobody would actually publish this. This is, this is mildly nuts. Uh, and, but I, I started developing it in my head and sort of almost against my will. I would write little pieces of the story. Uh, you know, I wasn't even really sure, does it need to be a novel? Is it, would it make a good comic book? Um, it was just the story that came out piece by piece about the characters that we eventually meet in the book, their relationships, their interactions, uh, the pieces of the world that we would know about and the pieces that would remain mysterious. And, you know, when I kind of came out of this fugue state and, you know, the fog lifted and we could go outside again without dying, uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is the skeleton of a real book. Not only that, I had two generations of story gamed out. So not only the, the characters from the first part of the story, but their children as well. It was like a Poldark saga of hot orcs. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, who the heck is going to publish this monstrosity? 
Uh, and at the time, I had been chatting with Mark Doyle at IDW, and he was like, you know, do you have anything in the hopper? And I said, well, yes, but you're going to think I've lost it. When I tell you what it is, do you have any interest in a hot orc book set against kind of a climate change background? He's like, yes, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and I said, fantastic. <laughs> um, and I don't think I've ever written a script as fast as I wrote issue one because I've been thinking about it for like two years at that point. And it had been waiting to come out in some capacity. So it, it really is a labor of love. It really is a, like, I don't care anymore. What the hell? <laughs> Life's too short. Write the hot art book. Um, and I was just really happy that I was able to find other people who felt similarly. And, um, you know, IDW suggested Chris Wild Goose, whose work I had loved on Batgirl. Uh, you know, and, you know, he was just as thrilled about it as I was and got immediately into the most creative and intricate development process for costumes and backgrounds and expressions and all of this stuff that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, and the result is a book that I think we're all super hyped about uh, and that has a little bit of everything. It's got, you know, romance, it's got politics, intrigue, action, plenty of blood and gore, uh, you know, some climate change stuff. <laughs> it's, it's literally got something for everybody. So I think we're all really, really excited that it's, it's available now to readers. So, I know a lot of people who are listening are probably going to be most familiar with you for your superhero work from Miss Marvel to Poison Ivy. Um, but also you've done books like The Invisible Kingdom. How has the experience writing um, Hunger in the Dust compared to any of those before? I will tell you what. The thing that I was most unprepared for and it's been the most interesting challenge of writing this book is how difficult it is to write high fantasy in an episodic monthly comic. Because, you know, like, we're all used to high fantasy novels where you have maybe 20-page long digressions about, well, here's the history of these people or this language or this legend or whatever. Uh, and in a movie, you know, you get, like, three paragraphs of script with music in the background that you got to read before you get to the first scene. In a 22-page comic, you have room for exactly none of that. So you really have to hit the ground running and make decisions about what to include, what to exclude. Um, I think more than any other book I've ever written, we've leaned harder on the art to tell the story. Because, you know, the cliche is true, a picture's worth a thousand words. And so a lot of the stuff that Chris puts into the background is key to the storytelling because it builds out the world that we're in without having to read these long paragraphs of text about 50 years ago, this thing happened, and then these people came... Um, and, you know, the way that he does that is just stunning. And it's been a really collaborative process as we decide, okay, what do we need to put in here to suggest that this is a world whose greatest eras are behind it? So we see a lot of crumbling buildings, tumbled down statues, uh, you know, the bleached bones of these giant beasts, you know, almost like dinosaurs that are kind of just dotting the landscape and our characters are kind of like huddled beneath them building campfires. So, you know, like it's it's been really interesting to kind of switch gears and make those kind of silent scenes do a ton of the heavy lifting to show us where we are and what kind of world this is uh, and you know it's it's not something you need to do even in like a superhero story which is still a sort of fantasy but it takes place in a world that we know you don't have to explain what a cell phone is you don't have to explain what New York is um, jeans you know shoes shopping transportation all of that stuff is a given uh, but in this book, it's all happening from scratch. So 
that has been wild. And getting the story beats to flow in a proper way and not interrupt it with a lot of explanation has been a really fun and exciting challenge. And the fact that it's turned out so well is, I have to say, probably something I'm most proud of in my career. So, yeah, it's really, really cool. I'll talk a little too. But um, I am a huge fantasy fan. Like, that's something that I've talked about on the show a lot. I love fantasy novels. I mean, I had Dallas read his quote-unquote sexy fairy books. <laughs> so I just have to ask, like, do you... You always like love writing fantasy. Is that something that you do like in your personal time? I mean, you mentioned during COVID, obviously, yeah. but I just would love to know like your relationship with fantasy. Like, if this is something that you want to explore more down the road, just talk to me about it. It's something I really love. Um, you know, it's it's interestingly there are not right now a whole lot of high fantasy comic books out there. But I grew up. Uh, you know, one of my earliest memories are about sitting with my dad and him reading The Lord of the Rings to me when I was, my God, I mean, I can't have been much older than a toddler. So I feel like that way of telling stories is kind of very deeply embedded, sometimes in ways I don't even recognize in a subconscious level. Um, you know, and I, I was super huge into sort of like girl force fantasy books as a young, you know, sort of tween. I read all of the Valdemar stories. <laughs> I read all of that stuff. Anything with talking horses in it, I would read. Um, so, you know, like super into a lot of sort of the late 80s type fantasy stuff with like the covers that looked like a van, a touring van of a heavy metal band. Uh, you know, if it had that kind of cover, I was in. Um, but, you know, interestingly, it's not something I've done a lot of in my professional life because, you know, as I was coming into the comic book industry, especially, it had kind of fallen out of favor. You know, we were getting a lot of urban fantasy where there's fantastical elements, but it's, again, in worlds that we recognize. Uh, you know, I read a lot of Neil Gaiman, who's obviously sort of the maestro of the urban fantasy genre, especially if you were a huge goth. Um, and so it's just sort of, you know, like I stopped developing ideas that were high fantasy because it wasn't really something that people were interested in publishing. Um, you know, but when I got to this book, again, because of the events in the world, I was like, I don't care anymore. It's like, if I want to do an workbook, I'm just going to pitch it. The worst they can do is say no, and I'll go back to doing what I was doing before. So, But apparently a lot of us kind of felt the same way, which is really interesting. Sometimes you can't predict what's in the zeitgeist and what's in the air. So it's, it's really gratifying to know that there were other people who were interested in reading the same kind of stories. So. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about um, Stephen King's fairy tale that he said he wrote during um, the pandemic. He's like, I want to write the type of story that I would like to read right now. Yeah. yeah. So, that's really it was cool like that, a collective thought somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wanted to get to a higher fantastical world. <laughs> that's but, right. It's like, like, please give us something good to yeah. think about. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. Incredible how that happens. It's, 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 there will be a wave and nobody quite knows where it came from, but all of a sudden we want the same thing. Yeah. I, I love hearing that you're a Tolkien fan. I'm a very big Tolkien fan. Similarly, my earliest memories are my dad reading me The Hobbit. That's awesome. That's probably my most read book in my entire life. And I... I love your casting the orcs as a more interesting and filled out group of people mm -hmm. than what Tolkien introduced us to. Can you talk a little bit about building out orcs as a culture and as a people within yeah. Under the Dusk? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, what I wanted to avoid is falling into any of the tropes that I think kind of really limit the, some of the older fantasy that we're used to. 
wherein we're sort of like, you know, human beings are a metaphor for white people, and orcs are a metaphor for everybody else, you know, and it's, it's lazy storytelling, it's kind of very much of its time, and in the development of the orcs that we see in The Hunger and the Dust, I was more influenced by some of the more recent depictions of orcs that have come out of the kind of reckoning that's been happening in other parts of pop culture, primarily video games, over the course of the last maybe 15 years. Uh, you know, if you played World of Warcraft ever, which I have, you probably have a crush on Brawl, who's, you know, an orc uh, who's been through some things at the hands of human beings that kind of reverse a lot of the tropes and the stereotypes that we may have had from older sorts of fantasy. Um, you know, same thing in the Elder Scrolls universe. You know, there have been some really interesting kind of ways of reimagining what all of this means in a modern context and sort of thinking back and looking at, uh, you know, fantasies of the before times as a product of the world in which they lived, which might not graph neatly onto the world in which we live right now. Um, and so that was something very important to both me and Chris going into this book, was to be like, humans are humans, they're not a metaphor for me. <laughs> like, they represent the full scope of the human race. Uh, and, you know, the same with the orcs. It's, you've got, uh, you know, a range of cultures and skin tones and hair colors and backgrounds, uh, because these are supposed to be complete groups of people. And it makes especially, I think, a... Uh, a very urgent kind of sense in the world that it's in because this is a world that is shrinking. So people that might have lived in far-flung places 500 years ago are now being forced into this smaller and smaller piece of land by the fact that the rest of it's now uninhabitable. So it makes sense to have people from a lot of different backgrounds now living side by side because there's nowhere else to go. Um, so that's something that we tried to incorporate very thoughtfully into this book. And you see it really starting on the first page is that um, you know, when we say an orc or a human, it's it's not a metaphor for something else. We, we really mean what we say. Um, and to try to flesh out all of those histories in a very complete way, but also not be info dumping, so that you're not sort of trying to guzzle down all of this information all at once about stuff that is not going to be relevant for another 50 pages. Uh, so it's a balancing act, but I think we, we sort of trying to hit that balance between you know, giving the readers enough information that they feel invested and not shoveling out so much information that you feel like you're reading a textbook instead of a fantasy story. Yeah. I think you struck that brilliantly, honestly. My biggest compliment to this book as I've handed it to people is this is a fantasy book that doesn't make you read a textbook. Like I've literally used that word. I That's love awesome. fantasy. I love Brandon Sanderson's fantasy, but I always hand it to people like, Get ready. Get ready. Like there, there's going to be a few chapters in there where you're like, I don't care about this money system. But it comes up later. And you just so effortlessly avoided that. And it was incredibly impressive. Thank you. I know. I really appreciate that. It was, it was not easy. <laughs> Off of that, you were talking a little bit about just your relationship with Chris and making sure that a lot of that um, was said, like, unsaid almost. Yeah. Were you using the art to explain that story? Can you talk a little bit more about that relationship you have and what that process looks like? Yeah, I think, you know, Chris and I have a closer collaboration than I've had on a lot of books where the world is already established, we're all filling the shoes of the giants who come before us, like in Gotham, where we all have, you know, 75 years of story to draw upon, and there's photo references for everything, and there's fan forums online where they've even caught details that the editorial team hasn't caught. 
Um, for this, we all had to be kind of on the same page from the first. And, you know, what, what I think Chris has done brilliantly is take stuff that I've written sort of as background uh, before we even got started on the script and not only start to draw what is in the, you know, like the documents that I send him and stuff, but also the layers underneath that. So, for example, the costumes that you see in the book, you're seeing the outside. He has designed every single undergarment that they're wearing underneath. So not only does he know what the viewer is seeing on the outside, he knows the tunic that's under that. And this design means this. Um, you know, and because we're in a world where a lot of knowledge has been lost and the great civilizations of the past are no more and people are sort of going backwards in terms of what they remember about history... Uh, you know, the technology that they have. He really got into that and has taken little bits and run with them. So, you know, he'll be like, oh, in this script, you know, where they're camping, this ruin is not just any ruin. It's, I made up this whole belief system for this people and, like, each of these statues means X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, great. And I'll just go and put it in our little Bible and I'll be like, I'll use this later at some point. So, you know, I really feel like we have been co-creators on every level it's not like i write the story and he does the art he he has done at least 50 percent of the heavy lifting on making this world lived in and gaming out the history and again a lot of it is stuff that the reader might not even see um but it, it's it's all very coherent and it goes in a big document and like these many many pages of background drawings that he's done um I've, I've really never seen anything like it. I've, I've never seen an artist do that much work on, like, a one-panel background. It's like, you know, it was a panel, and now we've got a whole belief system. That doesn't happen very often. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, just kind of to piggyback a little bit off of that, um, obviously when you were putting this out in your mind during um, COVID, uh, probably a lot of the characters started to kind of come to their own, but with that process of working together, like, do you have a favorite character or, from this or, like, someone that you just are proud of where they are at now that you just would love to talk about? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know how I can answer it because this is such an ens- ensemble Yeah, there's so story. many. Yeah, that, and, and each character is sort of designed to fit in a little place so they all, they all kind of complement each other. So you've got Troth, who's the sort of leader of this orc dynasty and he's very kind of sober and reserved because he kind of got this job almost by accident and you know he's very somber and solemn and and logical and uh you know you've got cal who's the leader of this very scrappy sort of mercenary company and he's had quite a crap time of it growing up and he's been through some terrible things that we kind of learn about we're like oh my god uh and yet he's got this sort of incorrigibly optimistic outlook and he's always very sunny almost to an annoying degree you're like don't you see these terrible things that are happening um you know you've got tara who was born into a very sort of aristocratic work family and then her family was in disgrace and so now she's kind of an outcast so she's dealing with a huge reversal of fortune so there's you know like all of these characters i think really make up for one another's weaknesses in ways that for me selfishly as a storyteller are really fun to play with because they're all sort of in their little defined space and they're all kind of unique um and you know there's a lot of opportunity for drama for comedy for uh there's kind of a love quadrangle emerging from all of this where like somebody's in love with somebody who's loving somebody else who's in love with somebody else 
So, uh, you know, for me, that's just a ton of fun. And if you take any one of those pieces out, it doesn't quite work the same. So I don't know that I can choose a favorite. It's not a cop-out, it's legit. No, that is, <laughs> that's so true, because you can really tell how important all of these characters are to each other. It's yeah. such a fun cast. So that's Thank you. a very valid answer. <laughs> um, with our last few minutes, you talked about this idea of, like, a shrinking world, writing, while world outside your window is on fire. A lot of that comes through in your Poison Ivy work as well. 100%. Do you feel like these two books came from the same place for you, or is this just something that's been on your mind for a while or a specific moment? Absolutely. No, these are both really pandemic books. Uh, the, the climate change pandemic axis, I would say, the conversion or the confluence of the pandemic with climate change. You know, I live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, which is a very... I never appreciated before extraordinarily delicate ecosystem. It's a temperate rainforest, which does not do well in drought conditions. So we kind of have a front row seat to what the rest of the world is going to get in the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, so it feels very, very urgent. It doesn't feel like something that's happening some point in the future in the Pacific Northwest. It's happening right now. It's changing right now. Um, and that urgency and that terror and that anger that you can see in Poison Ivy is 100% straight out of that. And, you know, like, she goes on her little murderous road trip to Seattle, which canonically is where she studied botany under Dr. Jason Woodrow, a.k.a. the Floronic Man, a.k.a. Floro. This is something that's in my contract. We all, all of us working on the book, have to say all of his titles. <laughs> it's in all of the emails. Uh, <laughs> and so it made sense. I was like, oh, this is perfect. You know, she leaves Gotham. She's going on this post-apocalyptic tour back to her origin place in Seattle. So it was it was very cathartic, which sounds really creepy, and I promise I don't mean it <laughs> in the context of an eco-terrorism book. But, uh, but oh yeah, these, these books are both very much products of their time. Yeah, it reminds me of Ed Brubaker talking about night fever as like a primal shout. Mm-hmm. Like he's, I feel like a lot of us at this point feel the need to yell it's like yeah living here in new york i'm feeling it as well like for sure. the last three years when the subway is flooded and turned into a river like i feel it in a way that i yeah. didn't when i lived in the mountain west yeah that it like i i knew we were growing up in a drought out there but like it just doesn't feel the same yeah as being right by the coast and the urgency comes from voice maybe yeah yeah well thank you yeah i both saying thank you feels weird because it's like you know <laughs> we're all gonna die <laughs> Thank you for noticing, but no. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's we're going to see more and more of that, and it's a shame that you know we didn't have this sense of urgency twenty or thirty years ago when we could have done something substantial. But uh, you know, better late than never, and I think we're getting to a point now where everybody feels like, okay, I got to gear up, and I think the art is going to reflect that in one way or another. Absolutely. And- Say my question with Poison Ivy is like, yeah, the world's ending, but okay, but her and Harley though. Yes. Like, she's going through a, a really, really big emotional change. She's going through a lot of um, really interesting development and that yeah. relationship's going in some really interesting directions and there's a new person in this relationship too. And an interloper. I, an interloper, <laughs> exactly. And I just wanted to ask, um, when you got onto this book and it got extended, yeah. what was the first thing you wanted to do? Like with oh, good question. Well, I wanted to bring in Harley more, for sure. Yeah. Because now that it was, you know what, when it wasn't clear what the free future of the book was going to be, you, you worry about changing the status quo too much, or, yeah. you know, like, because 
there's a Harley ongoing and you don't, I don't want to step on their toes or bring her in too much to the point where they're like, oh, now we have to change this in the Harley book. You know, I was very conscious of everybody's territory when it was a limited series. And that's why Ivy's kind of isolated. She's not in Gotham. Um, but when they were like, it's going to be ongoing and you've got to bring her back to Gotham. You know, I was like, okay, all right, we're going back. Um, and at that point I was like, all right, I want to put her back in with some of my favorite Gotham-based characters. Uh, you know, I'm a huge uh, Killer Croc fan. I'm number one Killer Croc apologist, you know, on the internet. Uh, so I wanted to bring him in, have more Harley scenes because she's back in Gotham. Bring Batman in occasionally, you know, like Catwoman's in there for a couple scenes. So, you know, get back into these relationships that Poison Ivy has built with other characters in Gotham over the course of the past 50 plus years uh, and try to sort of marry a lot of that sometimes contradictory continuity that's come out of some of those stories and be like, okay, let's, let's sort of definitively make this all mesh together uh, in a way that makes sense for the character in the world and everybody else. Um, so, you know, like the Harley Ivy relationship was front and center. Uh, <laughs> Ariana, our editor, loves, and this is from the original eight-page mini, uh, you know, short that I wrote thinking I was never going to see this character again, but Ariana loves Janet from HR, <laughs> who is this interloper in the Ivy universe, and, you know, whenever you've got a character like Ivy, having a normie point of view can be really critical to storytelling, because they're sort of the stand-in for us as readers and viewers, being like, oh my god, this is totally out of control of what's going on like if you can have someone who can be that Greek chorus in the opera and say the things that we would probably say when we were in those positions it provides comic relief it provides insight they can be sort of like the kid in the emperor's new clothes and point out when things are, are maybe not the way that the status quo would suggest um, and so she really fills that role and so that's been sort of the new character who stuck around against all odds you know like she didn't even have a last name I thought I was never going to see her again <laughs> she was a throwaway character Ariana was like no we need Janet from HR <laughs> and she has evolved into this amazing way to sort of I mean critique Batman she hit Batman in the face with her purse you know it's it's a lot of about like choosing sides and yes she has sort of fumbled her way into sort of coming between but not really Harley and Ivy in a way that that uh, you know is is <laughs> I think a, a humorous way to sort of bring in this this like very sort of non-issue character into this very high stakes relationship between two super powered people um, and you know like she just provides a lot of comic relief uh, there it is. <laughs> but you know like it's it's been fun to do more Harley and Ivy stuff. I mean, like, that's... I have I've spent so long in Ivy's head that I have Harley dreams. <laughs> I do! I mean, like, I can't believe I'm admitting this publicly. But it's really, really true. And, uh, you know, I think there's a reason that that relationship is so popular. Because yeah. I think it's, it's something... It's a type of relationship that we don't get very often in any kind of media. And, you know, being able to... I coordinate, obviously, with Tini Howard, who writes the, the Harley book, and we sort of game things out so that we're all on the same page. But, oh, you know, there's a reason why people love them as a couple, and I, I love them, too. <laughs> yeah. All right, our last question from Alexis. Oh, so I... A little bit of context. I'm decently new to the comic world, so I have not had the chance to read Poison Ivy. But I just want to know, like... <sighs> kind of like what it's like to write a character who very obviously you've said has such a long history of with these big characters and working with other creators of like 
coordinating her relationship with Harley, like, I would love to know a little bit more about just, like, that experience. It just seems so crazy to me. It's, you know, I, I like fun challenges. Yeah. And threading the needle with a character who has a lot of history is one of those fun challenges. I think Poison Ivy especially has been so many things over so many decades. Sometimes she's the seductress, she's very cheesecakey. Sometimes she's just, like, a very sort of unhinged, angry eco-terrorist. Sometimes she's, like, a very cutesy earth mama. Um, and trying to sort of meld all of those things together, which includes, you know, work by some of the giants of the industry, like Neil Gaiman or James Tinian more recently and, and Teeny Howard. And, um, you know, trying to bring all that in in a way that is satisfying to long-term readers and at the same time opens new doors to new readers who maybe have never picked up, uh, you know, an Ivy comic book or any Gotham comic book before. Uh, it, it requires a lot of juggling in, in kind of the best sense of the word. Um, but you know, like it's, it's a privilege, honestly, it's a privilege to be given the toys that, you know, everybody played with in their childhood and it means so much to so many people and, and try to do right by them. Uh, you know, like try to come up with stories that add something new, but also remain respectful of the history of that character. And, uh, yeah, you know, like I, I really love it, especially with someone like Ivy, who, though she has decades of history, feels very current for all of the reasons that we've discussed. Um, but who has never had her own ongoing series. So it's just so much fun. I try to keep it fun. You know, I, I never lose my reverence for the history of the character. And, uh, and yeah, it's delightful. It's disgusting. It's beautiful. And I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I'm excited to read it. I'm very excited. I love Ivy as a character. So That's I awesome. love it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for oh, yeah. your time. My um, pleasure. Yeah, is there anything that you want to plug or point our listeners to? Uh, no, that's great. You know, I those are the two books I've got out right now. So Poison Ivy is uh, uh, the first six six issues have been collected, um, and the single co- issues come out monthly. And Hunger in the Dust is on issue three and also comes out monthly. You can pre-order the first trade paperback as well, which comes out next year. So yeah, any of those options are fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. Goodbye.